Well, thank you, Chad. And I feel like after a passage of Scripture like that, we ought to just catch our breaths and uh, and take some time sitting before the Lord, thanking Him for His glory. Pray as we begin. Acknowledge that you are high and holy. You, Christ, are before all things. Preeminent above all things. By your hand, all things were created. The the co-creator of the cosmos, working with the Father and, and the Spirit. You are high and lifted up, Jesus, and we praise your name. We pray now as we turn our attention to your holy word, your infallible, inerrant, precious word, your revelation to your people. We pray, Lord, that you would guard us from error and that you would guide us in your truth. We pray in your name, Jesus, and for your sake. Amen. I'd like to start off with a question this morning. How do you measure greatness? How would you do that? How, how would you measure, if you were to measure, greatness? It's one thing, I think you'd agree, for something to be good, but some things are just next level, right? I mean, there, there are just some things that are in a category of their own, and there's all kinds of bluster out there about what constitutes the best of something. What do they call it now? The, the goat, the greatest of all time. I, I just hesitate to even say those words. I know I'm getting old. Uh, let me give you an example of, of this, uh, this conversation about what constitutes the best. I used to really be into basketball when I was younger. I was a, a player and a coach. And, and there's an ongoing debate, this uh, very tense conversation about the greatest basketball player of all time. See, I found myself uh, in one of the side classrooms uh, this morning with Sam Jones, who coaches uh, women's basketball at Waynesburg University, uh, and, and I loved what he had to say uh, about this question. But, but who would you say, this is the debate that rages on the internet and all, all other uh, forums, who is the greatest basketball player who's ever lived, the, the greatest of all time? Now, of course, the first name that comes to many of our minds is Michael Jordan, he gets my vote. But there, there are other contenders. Perhaps it was one of those famous big men to sport the number 33, like Larry Bird or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or, or even the larger-than-life Shaquille O'Neal, who, who wore 33 for a while and shouldn't really be a part of this conversation. But he has a larger-than-life personality. Or maybe it was somebody in the generation that followed those greats, somebody like Kobe or perhaps LeBron who's still playing today. Not, not LeBron, by the way. Not, not LeBron. The point is, there are just some things that are objectively better than others. Like when I moved to Washington about a decade ago, and I learned that there is, in fact, a superior donut here in town. You do know that, don't you? There, there is no contest. Far and away, Crency's cream-filled donuts are the absolute best. Peerless here in the city of Washington. Well, today we're going to hear John the Baptist make a startling claim about greatness. And 
very much unlike other subjective claims of what it means to be the highest or the best, whether in basketball or in pastries, this claim to highest and best, this claim to greatness is made with divine authority. Let's buckle up together because the scale of greatness that we're about to behold in Christ is utterly astounding. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in our journey through the book of Luke. So let me invite you to, to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. Luke 3, 15. We'll read till we hit the genealogy. Luke 3, 15 to verse 22. And we'll hit that scintillating list of names next week. Dr. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Luke 3.15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, that is John the Baptist, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, verse 18, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. Wow. Mightier than I. That was John the Baptist's claim. And let's not miss the significance of these word, uh, words. Excuse me. John the Baptist, let me remind you, is a very big deal. Matthew's gospel tells us that the people of Israel were coming out in droves to be baptized with him. Matthew 3, 5, and 6. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him to be baptized. You see, the power of God was on this baptizer in an unusual way. People were cut to the heart as they heard his call to repent of their sins and make themselves ready for the coming Christ, for the Messiah, such that the crowds, and we saw last week the tax collectors, the soldiers even, are asking, John, tell us what to do. Now, add to the fact that John was a very big deal, Jesus' very own testimony about John the Baptist. We'll see Later in full force, Luke 7, 28, Jesus describing John the Baptist in front of people. And he says these striking words, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater 
than John. Let that sink in for just a moment. Among those born of women, which would be who? Everybody, right? Everybody that is everybody and the whole scope of humanity. There is not one born greater than this John the baptizer. Now, to be fair, Jesus continues to speak and he goes on to say something mind-blowing. He says, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Those who would receive a better baptism, us, those of the new covenant, would have it so mind-bogglingly, mind-blowingly good in Christ that we, we would even have it better. That we somehow would attain to a higher status than the best man who's ever walked the globe. Now, we'll, we'll save that message for Luke 7 when we get there, but uh, suffice it to say, John the Baptist is divinely empowered and positioned for big stuff. And... We shouldn't breeze by the fact here that in our text this morning, people start off by, by saying about John, hey, you must be, surely you're the Messiah. They're, they're, they're thinking, they're questioning in their hearts such power. Maybe this is the one we've been waiting for. But I want you to see here, John is having none of that. Not, not one ounce of that. Let's, let's see how much greater John the Baptist considers the, the one to come, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, than himself. He says in verse 16, look with me please, chapter thir- uh, 3, excuse me, verse 16, John's about to tell us just how superlative, just how much higher the coming one, Christ, is than he. He says, I tell you, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now, I think we can see here with that statement here in verse 16, John knew his role. His role was to to point. His role was to deflect, to, to deflect glory, attention away from himself and to direct it to Christ. I love these words from uh, Alistair Begg. He's a pastor who's been very helpful to me in, in life and in ministry. I don't know if we've got... Yeah, we do have the quote up on the screen. John the Baptist, Begg says, understood his role. Prepare the way and get out of the way. Isn't that good? Isn't this, after all, what John would say about himself? John's Gospel, chapter 3 We find this striking phrase as disciples of John the Baptist are now beginning to follow Jesus, the one he's been pointing to. And and some of John's followers are are confounded by this. They come up to him and say, hey, all your followers are going to, to follow this Jesus. He's doing things differently. And John's line is, he must increase. I must decrease. Now, even today... 2,000 years removed in a radically different culture and and societal context, we can still appreciate how radical John the Baptist's claim is about the greatness of Christ. Not even worth me dealing with his shoes. I mean, that's that's pretty great. Yet John acknowledges this 
cavernous divide in a way that, if I may, is even more striking than what we would initially think about as American citizens in 2023. Let me help twist the knife just a bit here so you can see the twinge, the force of this power. You see, in Jewish culture at, at this time, in the first century, Palestine, the act of tying, or untying, excuse me, someone's sandal was absolutely the lowest of the low thing you could do. As a matter of fact, there was even laws on the books in, in Jewish life and culture saying that even a Jewish slave was not expected to do that. That was beneath them. Which I think should make us pause. So, some of you may remember what Jesus does right before he goes to the cross in John chapter 13. In that moment when he prepares to serve sinful humanity and takes a towel and gets down on his hands and knees washes the feet of his disciples there's no wonder that peter objected not even jewish slaves were allowed to do that come on jesus you're all wrong this is not what the messiah does jesus objects Unless I serve you in this way, unless I humble myself in mind-blowing categories, unless I ultimately go to the cross and give up my life for you, Peter, you have no part of me. The King of kings and the Lord of lords stooping down that low. John says, I'm not even worthy to touch his shoes. And there's the Messiah. Washing our feet. Now, if you want some application, if you want some ways just practically in your life to be thinking about, meditating on, growing in what it means for Christ to have his rightful place, for Christ to be mightier than I, to use John's words and words that we too should own, I think one of the things that you could do just on a very simple note is to latch on to some of those statements that we read responsively just a moment ago in Colossians chapter 1. And I love that passage Chad led us in reading. One of the highest Christological passages in all of Scripture. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. You want to grow in what it means that that Christ would be pre preeminent, that he would be greater than you, than me, than all. Just begin meditating on that statement this week. Just, just jot down Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and just read and, and, and reread, maybe commit to memory that passage or elements of that passage. You want to know what, what God looks like? Look at Jesus. He's his image, the exact representation of his being, the author of Hebrews tells us. All things were created through Him and for Him. In Him, and we just read this, in Jesus, all things hold together. She spent some time thinking about that this week. I'm not even sure physiologically what that means. But as far as I'm aware, scientists don't, they can't go small enough dissecting 
cells and nanocells and, and their parts to even figure out how they relate to one another and what's there. The Holy Spirit tells us in Colossians 1, let me help you out. In Jesus, all things cohere. All things hold together. If for a moment, He should cease to sovereignly superintend over the earth and over the world that He's created, we would fall apart. You want to think about the greatness of Jesus. Meditate on those words there in Colossians 1 this week. Mightier than I. That's John's claim. Yes, John. Mightier than all. Now, this baptizer goes on here in our text to give us one very concrete way to see just how greater he is. And he invites us to do so by looking at their baptisms. John the Baptist prompts us, just, just scale them. Compare my baptism with Jesus' baptism. You should note here, John's not the only one baptizing, right? Jesus, according to Luke 3, is a baptizer too. And his baptism is far superior. Look at verse 16. John says, I'm here baptizing y'all with water. My baptism is about repentance, the forgiveness of sins. I'm here to point you to your need for a Messiah, for a Savior, for a Deliverer. But His baptism, He points to the Christ, His baptism is categorically better than mine. I baptize with some water. He's baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Talk about leveling up. The Holy Spirit! And with fire. <laughs> what a baptism. I'm just going to confess to you, I was, I was preparing uh, this message a, a while back, sitting in Panera with some earbuds in, and I was, I was reading through and praying through this passage, and I was using uh, the work of a particular uh, commentator who's been helpful for me, uh, Philip Ryken, who writes for the Reformed Expository Commentary. Uh, anyway, the point was, um, I was reading through this uh, Ryken's explanation of John the Baptist's words here, and I literally was like... A ball of snot and tears in the middle of Panera, like hoping people weren't looking at me. I was just like overwhelmed as Riken was describing what it actually means that Jesus would baptize in the Holy Spirit. Let me remind you, friend, it is this Spirit who regenerates you. You don't know salvation without the Spirit. Romans 8 tells us, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, the, the Holy Spirit, you don't even belong to Him. All who are of Christ have been baptized into His Spirit. It's the Spirit who draws you, who, who regenerates you from death to life. Your heart was a stone. It was a rock. And He's made it flesh. That's the work of the Spirit. That's what happens when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit. But it didn't stop there. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us. The Holy Spirit is the one who adopts us as sons. What a beautiful picture. So that you and me, we can cry to God in prayer, Abba, Father. It's the Spirit 
which does that. He regenerates us. He adopts us. It's the Spirit who sanctifies us, who sets us apart as holy. It's the Spirit who seals us, who keeps and preserves us for the day to come. And it is the Holy Spirit, let me remind you, that fills us and equips us as the people of God for everything that is necessary for life and godliness. Being baptized into the Holy Spirit is a very big deal, which coincidentally is why you read about in Acts 18 when this stud of a teacher, Apollos, is ministering in the early church, but all he knows is John's baptism. Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside and explain to him the way more adequately. And Apollos, filled with the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit, becomes an amazing force for the kingdom of God. Note, I think we need to note here, that it's not just baptism by God the Spirit. There's also this interesting note about what? Some of you saw it. About fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, because some of you like lunch, we are not going to do a deep dive on this in this very moment. (laughs) Some believe that baptism by Spirit and fire simply is a reference to Pentecost to come. Just flip a, a couple chapters over and Luke writes the second installment of his, of his uh, inspired account of Jesus and his ministry through the Acts of the Apostles. And, and when, when the Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, you'll note that that Spirit comes and manifests itself as with tongues of, take a wild guess, fire, right, fire, tongues of fire. I don't think there's anybody out there who's saying it's not that. Of of course, that climactic moment when the Spirit falls is a baptism of spirit and of fire. The question is, is it only that or is it primarily that? And, And what I would just suggest to you this morning, church, is that it would be biblically reckless. Yeah, that's too much. It's at least biblically sloppy for us to say that spirit and fire baptism is only an Acts chapter 2 Pentecost kind of thing. Why do I say that? Well, just keep reading. Read the very next verse. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What's that look like? Well, it looks like this. He's got a winnowing fork in his hand. And then we see fire again at the end of the, ne- the very next verse. But what's happening as a result of the fire? We'll get there in a minute. The answer is judgment. Judgment. You see, there's an element of the baptism that Jesus brings that will not just seal His people with the Spirit. Thank the Lord for that. But which will also bring fire fire. Wow. It would seem to me, if you read verse 17, 
that that's not an entirely good thing. Being baptized with the fire that Jesus brings. The fire, speaking here of judgment, is his, his consuming wrath. And yet, fire also brings, does it not, in Scripture, a purifying aspect. There's a dimension of fire spoken about by the Old Testament prophets and echoed in, in the New Testament, which has a purifying effect. If you're interested in looking this uh, up more, deeper into this, you can go to 1 Peter 1.7. Where the Apostle Peter writes about how the fire of God, trials in this sense, burns off the dross and purifies gold. So, so, so just in a very simple way, let's think about this together. The same fire which consumes stubble and chaff is the fire that purifies gold. That's fascinating. I think we need to interpret Jesus' words here in context of what he's saying. And we, whatever this means fully, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in fire, we certainly can't neuter it. We, we certainly can't ignore the immediate context in, into which it's placed, which means we would be remiss not to think about the image that the Bible puts forward to describe this fire baptism or a part of it, which is, how to speak plainly here, which is the horror of eternal burning. Look at verse 17. What's the, what's the fire yield? Well, it's unquenchable and it yields judgment. Friends, because of Luke 3.17, I think it's important for us to note that there is no room for us to believe this nonsense about when we die, we merely cease to exist outside of Christ. You know, there's some who will teach that. Even some supposed teachers within, within the church who would seek to say, you know, the idea of burning under the wrath of God's anger for an eternity is admittedly difficult to even wrap your mind around. And yet, if, if God's inspiration, if God's scripture is to us our final authority for all life and living, we should call true the things that he calls true, affirm the things that he believes. And, and I think one of the things that is dangerous to say is that this theory that, that if you don't know Christ, you know, maybe like if you, if you know Jesus, the teaching goes, you'll, you'll go up to be with him in heaven forever. But if you don't know Jesus, just because the thought of an eternal hell of conscious torment is just a little bit too much, and surely a loving God would never do something like that, maybe those Marked for condemnation just eventually kind of disappear. Maybe they just cease to exist. Maybe that's what hell is all about. Let me speak plainly. This theory, which is called annihilationism, you're annihilated if you're not saved, is both dangerous and false, 
and it flies in the face of Jesus' personal teaching about hell and the whole counsel of Scripture's truth. This fire, which John cites here in chapter 3.17 as unquenchable, is the same fire, is the same hell of torment which Jesus himself affirms as the worm that does not die. It's the same truth echoed in the book of Revelation at the end. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. This is is heavy stuff. But if we're thinking rightly about our God and about the eternity that he has marked us for, we got to get a grip on this. we got to understand how high the stakes are. John says, listen, there's one coming after me, and his baptism is altogether glorious and terrible. He will either baptize you with his spirit and purify you with his refining fire, or that fire will consume. For all eternity. I, I hope. If you're here today. You're not seeing me up here. Or the scripture's truth is just wagging. A proverbial finger at you. But rather. Appealing to you. With grace. And kindness. Friend. You are an eternal soul you will live forever every human being made in the image of God will never cease to exist and you will you will go on living forever and ever and ever in unthinkable bliss at Jesus hand our pleasures forevermore Or with unquenchable fire. We're not playing church here at FCC. This is true. And we believe it. And because we believe it, we herald the gospel. And we order our lives accordingly. You will live forever. And I just want to point out to you, this isn't John the Baptist just speaking like an angry minor prophet. This is a theme that we see In the New Testament as well. Jesus, friends, has come to separate. That's what he does. The wheat from the chaff. The sheep from the goats. Remember Simeon's prophecy a week or two ago? Jesus has come, this little baby, this 40-day-old baby has come, and you know what he's going to do? He's going to cause the fall and the rising of many. That's his job. We see this recurring theme throughout Luke's gospel that Jesus is the dividing line between ruin and resurrection. Between destruction and deliverance. And so we appeal to you. John, the baptizer, appeals to you. Submit to His grace. Follow Him. Live your life. Gladly, in light of the salvation that he's come to usher in.
Now, this metaphor, this separating metaphor, is precisely what we see as John continues in his teaching. Look at verse 17 with me. John the Baptist now gives us another striking picture after this fire deal. Look at verse 17. He tells us that the Messiah's winnowing fork is in his hand. Whew. This winnowing fork picture serves, it's meant to serve, as a summary statement of everything John's been saying up to this point. Now, a winnowing fork is not a very common sight here in Washington, Pennsylvania in 2023. As a matter of fact, if you go down to Rural King, not far from here, chances are you're probably not going to run into a winnowing fork as you comb the aisles of all kinds of good agricultural items. I looked them up online. Zero results for winnowing forks at Rural King. So, my point is, this picture that John gives may not be as familiar to us as it certainly was familiar to John's listeners in first century Palestine. So, a little help here. A winnowing fork was just simply a tool. It was a farming implement, kind of something akin to a pitchfork that would have been used at harvest time to thresh wheat. You see, a farmer would, would scoop up the wheat on his threshing floor and toss it up into the air. Hopefully into the wind, if possible. And what, what would happen as that winnowing fork threw the grain, the wheat, up into the air, the heavier kernels of the good stuff, the grain, the wheat, would fall straight to the ground and the lighter refuse, the chaff, would be blown by the wind somewhere else. And they would do that over and over and over, tossing the, the wheat up into the air to sift, to separate, that's the word, the wheat from the chaff. And then, when they were done, it was collecting time. The grain, of course, would be collected and put into the barn for later use. And the chaff would be collected to be burned. Here's the bottom line. This picture of a winnowing tool, which John the Baptist tells us is in the hands of Jesus, is a tool used for separation. That's its purpose. Separation. It's used to divide the wheat from the chaff. Isn't that what we've been talking about? Before we move on here from this winnowing idea, I want you to see, this is too good to, to skip over, I want you to see in verse 17 here, the possessive language. This is striking. Four times in verse 17, we see the possession of the Messiah highlighted here. You see this? His winnowing fork is in His hand to clear His threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. Do you see? All this belongs to the king. Everything here belongs to the Messiah. And, and the wheat will come into his possession. Will come into his barn. Except what? His winnowing fork. His hand. His threshing floor. His wheat in his barn. Except then we just see the chaff. Notice that the chaff does not belong to him. Because it's marked for fire. So, in this moment, if your soul 
is trembling just a bit, and, and I know mine often does as I think through these weighty truths. If in this moment there's a rising sense of your own guilt and sin welling up within you, the answer, friend, is not for you to respond with grit. It's not for you to try to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and prove to God that you're wheat and not chaff. It's a job that's too big for you. Remember, the difference between the wheat and the chaff is the Holy Spirit. The good news of the gospel is that the very same person who holds this winnowing fork, this separating fork in his hands, is the one who would stretch out his hands. To take the nails and bear the sin and the shame of you and of me so that you would no longer be chaff, but that you would be baptized by His Spirit, purified by His fire. Friends, consider these hands. The same hands that hold the winnowing fork, are the, the same hands that hold the very world in its orbit. Remember, we, we read Colossians 1. In Him, all things cohere. These are the hands of the Good Shepherd, who we read in John chapter 10, holds us in His hand, and no one can snatch us from that hand. These are good hands. I'm a good shepherd. And our response to his terrifying judgment and his glorious salvation is to submit joyfully and follow him with all we got. Verse 18. We learn here with many other exhortations, he, John the Baptist, preached the good news to his people. It's interesting, isn't it, that this stuff feels like, this is... In your face. John. Preaching hellfire and brimstone. John. Yeah. But what's the Bible call this? The Bible calls this good news. This, by the way, in Greek, is the same word for gospel. This is the euangelion. This is the good news that John came to usher on. That Jesus would come to embody. And note, we see here in verse 18, that what we have right here in this little snippet of Luke 3, is just a summary of John's collective teaching. John was saying a whole lot more with many other exhortations, Dr. Luke tells us. We've got just a sampling of what John the Baptist was, was preaching. And, and for the sake of time, we're not going to teach through this, but I just want to give you a window into the many other exhortations and the good news that John was preaching from John the Gospel writer, John the Apostle's Gospel in John 1.29. I'm just going to read this for you. You don't need to turn unless you'd like. I'm just going to read to you. These are, the, these are the words. These are part of the many other exhortations. This is part of the good news that John the Apostle recorded. John the Baptist saying, I, I love this. I hope in Christ you love this. John 1.29 The next day he, speaking of John the Baptist, saw Jesus 
coming toward him and said. I want you to get this in your mind. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him. And here's what he says. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that beautiful? That's the gospel. This is he of whom I said, John the Baptist continues, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water. Let me bottom line it for you, John says, that he, Jesus, the Lamb of God, might be revealed to Israel. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit, we're about to see this together, descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist Many other words and exhortations were that Jesus was the Lamb of God, the substitute, the sacrifice, the Passover Lamb that takes your life and your place, that dies so you don't have to. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, the perfect sacrifice. And He's not just a Lamb, He is God the Son. He's divine. That's John's testimony of Jesus. That's why this table is here before us. To remind us. Who died in our place. So that we might have life. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He is the Lamb of God, and yet He's also the Son of God. Now, we're not going to give this too much more, but, but we can't ignore this glorious and divine truth right at the end of this passage here. Let's hit the baptism of Jesus. Now, I, I want you to note here at the end of our passage, verses 21 and 22, we get just a summary, just a condensed, crunched together synthesis of Jesus' baptism. Matthew and his gospel is going to give it full color. And so I want to encourage you, if you want to think more deeply this week about Jesus' baptism, which was a very big deal, Matthew 3. Now, the reason why we can't skip this, the reason why we can't um, fail to acknowledge the, the primacy, the import of Jesus' baptism is because Jesus' baptism Friends, is one of the clearest places in all of Holy Scripture that we see the three-in-one nature of the triune Godhead. Translation, at Jesus' baptism, we see the Trinity on display in all its glory, perhaps as much or more clear than anywhere else in Scripture. Again, we just get a very condensed version in verses 21 and 22 here by Dr. Luke. I mean, I, I labored over how much to give this, but for the sake of time and for us celebrating the Lord's table today, as we rightly should, we'll save 
Jesus' baptism for another time when we got time to, to teach through the fuller account in, in Matthew chapter 3. But I want you to see here, verses 21, 22, the triunity of God. He is one God. And He eternally exists in three persons. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And it, the baptism of Jesus... The reason why we see this with an exclamation point is because you have all three members of the triune Godhead highlighted in a beautiful and demonstrable way. Look at verse 21. Excuse me. We get Jesus, the Son of God, the second eternal person of the Trinity, and He's there, isn't He? I mean, he's standing in the water. He's praying. Verse 21. He's just been baptized. That's God the Son. And as he's there, after he's being baptized, as he's praying in this beautiful fellowship between the Trinity, what happens? Well, verse 22, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, descends on him in bodily form, like a dove. Note, it's like a dove. The Holy Spirit is not a dove, but it's also not just a metaphor. The Spirit descended bodily. And the bounds of the, of the English language, certainly the Greek language, can't quite contain exactly what that looks like. But this was not some kind of mystical, mucky, wishy-washy experience. This was concrete. He descended bodily, God the Spirit, on God the Son. And then... As Jesus is standing there in the water, Matthew tells us, as the Spirit comes visibly, tangibly, bodily down to rest on Him, God the Father echoes from heaven, this is My Son. My beloved Son. And I am well pleased with Him. Notice Jesus hasn't performed a single miracle yet. He's been carpentering, if I can make that a verb, or whatever he was doing, out of the limelight. God is well pleased with his son, God the Father, with God the Son. All three, you see it? See how beautiful this is? Three in one. Father, Son, Spirit, right here at the moment of Jesus' baptism. Which is why I was so thankful that Ruth Ann had us singing so often, actually in ways that I, didn't, I wasn't even aware of in some of these choruses, the emphasis of the Trinity. I, uh, I don't have the guts to sing it to you, but it's got me thinking of the doxology, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Our God is one. And He is three persons in His one nature, essence, in His Godhead. Alright. Well, we, uh, we're, we're about wrapped up here, but uh, I, I think as we close, we ought to just um, take a pass for a moment to John, because this is the last time we're going to see Him. For a while. We'll see him once more in Luke's gospel in chapter 7. You gotta ask yourself the question okay, so, so what becomes of this greatest man who's ever been born to a woman from the mouth of Jesus? Well, 
as he continues to courageously prepare the way for the Lord and speak truth. You see that he's locked up by Herod the Tetrarch, and, um, and we, will, we will see in a few chapters, he will ultimately pay the final price and die a martyr's death for doing what God set him to do. John the Baptist, John the baptizer was a pointer. He pointed the way to Jesus, and then he got out of the way. And now as we stand, he can sit here, Friendship Community Church, with this table before us. That's, that's our goal. That's the goal of communion. Jesus himself instructed us to remember the fact that he was, as John told us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we obey. So we remember where home base is. It's, it's the gospel. It's, the, it's at the moment of Calvary where Jesus paid that ultimate price and died on a, on a bloody tree and took our curse upon himself and traded his righteousness for our sin and shame. This is the Lord's Supper. This is the ordinance of communion.